On this edition of the Scott Radley Show, we are talking tattoos. Because apparently, according to a new study from McMaster, if you have tattoos, and I don't mean a little ladybug on your foot, I mean tattoos. If you've got tattoos, you are probably more impulsive than someone who doesn't have it. And what does that mean? I mean, we know what impulsive means. I mean, what does it mean? How do we apply this knowledge? Well, that's we're going to discuss that. Also, if you had a $350,000 watch, and I know many of you listening do. I mean, who doesn't own a $350,000 watch? And you were going to play a game of football. Would you wear it on the field? Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Lots and lots and lots of election talk today. I'm sure you caught some of it. Uh, Prime Minister Trudeau visited Rideau Hall this morning, dissolved government and got the race started. I hope you were listening to Bill Kelly's show this morning. They had an hour and a half of excellent coverage on this to get you going, get you started. Scott Thompson's show this afternoon, tons of coverage there as well. You know where you can find it. Uh, there will be tons of election discussion going on for the next 40 days. You know, the wasn't it Noah's Ark that was floating for 40 days? That's how I kind of feel like we're going to be heading in this election. 40 days of just bobbing around in bleak hopelessness. Anyway, um, what you may not have heard in all the election talk was another really important story today that because of 9-11 as well, lots of coverage on 9-11 arena talk here in Hamilton, there was another very important story that seemed to slip between the cracks. Some of you will have caught it, especially if you were just listening to the news. Sam Hammond, the head of the Ontario Elementary Teachers Federation, or the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario, more properly, has called for a strike vote. Uh, It's going to be done over the next little while. It's going to be through a series of meetings. And he says that there is no guarantee. This doesn't mean the teachers are heading to the picket line. But it does certainly start the clock towards some kind of possible job action. And if this sounds like it's an old story, well, it, it is. We have been down this road many times before. The teachers' unions couldn't get along with Bob Ray's NDP government. They couldn't get along with Mike Harris's conservative government. They couldn't get along with Dalton McGinty or Kathleen Wynne's liberal governments. You know darn well they're not getting along or won't be getting along with Doug Ford's conservative government. Which leads me to an inescapable conclusion that some kind of job action is probably inevitable. Despite the fact that everyone's saying, oh, no, no, it doesn't mean that necessarily. It, it feels that way. It feels that way. Whether it's a strike, whether it's extracurriculars being canceled, whatever it is, it feels like something is inevitable because you just, to me, I can't imagine the teachers' unions that can't get along with anybody seemingly somehow getting along with Doug Ford's crew. It just, they're oil and water. So when the face-off comes, if it does, and I'm presuming that it probably will, I want to ask you, who are you going to support on this one? Where do you stand on this one if we end up with another teacher government showdown? Which I actually want to rephrase a little bit because that's the way it's always phrased. Uh, It's a teachers, the teachers are facing off with the government. The proper description of these things would be a teachers union taxpayers showdown because that's what this is about. That's what this is about, really. I mean, you, you can have the, the other story the way you want it, but it's a teacher's union versus taxpayer's showdown. So I want to know who you would stand with if we end up in another circumstance where you have 
extracurriculars that are stopped or teachers actually walking out or something else that is happening, do you say, you know what? No, no, we, I, I believe the teachers, I believe in the education system. It must be protected. The teachers are our last line of defense. They're doing their job. The government needs to f- put more money, do whatever, can't make any cutbacks. Or do you say, mm, enough, enough, enough. We pay in this province something like 27 or $28 billion towards education. There has to be a breaking point at some point, doesn't there? Enough. Like if you can't make it work with $28 billion, you can't make it work. Where do you stand on this one if it were to come to bloody knuckles again? 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Especially if you're a parent, especially if you're a student. Especially if you're someone who is truly going to be directly impacted by this, if it were to happen. And again, forgive my pessimism. I believe there will be some kind of showdown. I just cannot see after all the years, the last 20, 25 years where the teachers unions have been unable to work with any government of any political stripe. And now they're facing off with Doug Ford's government that they have made clear they can't stand I cannot see that there's going to be an amicable settlement in this without a fight to the death beforehand. But who would you stand with? 905-645-3221, star 9900. Here's the problem that I have with this whole thing. And again, I, I, I always loathe doing these in a sense because I have friends who are teachers. I have family who's teachers. I have great respect for teachers. The teachers, to me, this is not about the teachers per se. They are going to be voting. This is a teacher's union thing. This is a teacher's union thing. This is, this is not about bashing teachers. We had a lady on here once, several years ago. She was a retired teacher. I believe she was from Ottawa. And her position was, there are so many teachers that may not want to go along with the union, but you can't stand up to them. Well, I don't know if that's true, but that was her position. I don't believe this is a teacher's thing. I believe this is a teacher's union thing, and I believe this is a taxpayer thing. But I want to know who you would stand with if we get into a a squabble that spills into some sort of action. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are talking about education. Sam Hammond, the head of the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario, has called for a strike vote while negotiations are going on with the province. I don't try to be a pessimist, but I'm looking at the track record of the teachers unions and various governments, and I just can't see a way that this doesn't become nasty considering the union's feelings towards the Ford government. So my question is, if if we get to some kind of job action or some kind of thing by teachers, stopping extracurriculars, doing something, where do you stand? Are you with the teachers because they are defending education, or are you with the government saying, enough, teachers, we're putting so much money into education, make it work. Stop fighting, just make it work. Stop using kids as pawns, make it work. Where would you stand if that were to happen? 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell phone. By the way, that's 9900. I had a few people tell me they've called star 900. That's our traffic line. That's our traffic hotline, 9900. Sandra is up first today. Sandra, how are you this evening? I'm very well. Thank Excellent. You for having this topic. Where would um, you stand if this were to happen? 
Um, here's one of my problems. <clears throat> Canadian and especially Ontarian teachers are some of the highest paid teachers the world over. And I mean the world over, so include Norway, England, U.S., and whatnot. Yeah, to teachers yeah, in Toronto, by the way, Toronto District School Board teachers, last numbers that I could find, and I know Hamilton will be close to this, they were averaging 87000 a year. So just, there you go. Yeah, okay, well, that's fine. Uh, I, I don't care what they are. They, they deserve it. But you know what you're doing when you go... <clears throat> When you go into teaching, you know what you're doing when you go into dentistry. You're going to be looking in someone's jaw. You know what you're going to be doing when you're a mortician. You're going to be looking at dead bodies in markets. So when teachers go into this and they go, well, yeah, we got long days, and then uh, we only get two months in the summer. No, I get it, but that's the job. That's what you chose. Teachers are very good, and it's a skill. I get it, and they get paid well. But you decide that you're going to hold strike action, which interferes with a whole lot of lives, interferes with a whole lot of rhythms somewhere around the third week of September. Really? You couldn't have gone to the table, Mr. Union guy, uh, sometime in, I don't know, July? And let's face it. Let's remember that the teachers pay, the teachers and, and all the, the folks there in, in that uh, union cluster, they pay the union to work for them. It's true. It is true. It's always the case with union. Sandra, i got to run to another call, but thank you so much. I appreciate the insights. I'd love to have you back on to talk about this again. Uh, Dave is with us. Dave, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Where do you stand on this one? Who would you stand with on this one? Well, uh, education is a very complex topic. So I'm going to say this. I stand by the taxpayer. And what I mean by that is if we spend $28 billion on education as a province, then governments, teachers, administration alike have to collaborate and look for efficiencies everywhere. And I mean, what I mean by that is the number of school boards in the province, the number of administrators we have in the province, the buildings and the facility, facilities and how they're managed and maintained, and the money and the dollars we spend on that, uh, the efficiencies with whether it be classroom sizes too big, too small, or otherwise, Focus is funny in the media where the teachers will complain and say the cuts are happening at the classroom level and the classes are too big and and they have reasons why they're so hard done by. And I'm sure it's not easy being a teacher, but it's not easy being whatever vocation you choose. For me, $28 billion at the end of the day is not being spent efficiently enough. And we don't need, in my opinion, as many school boards as we need. Everyone should go to school, and there's too much administration and way too much over-processing in any government entity or any union environment, for that matter. There's a lot of people involved, and all those people get paid, and they're all getting paid by someone. So, to me, the focus isn't really about students and classrooms and whether or not the teachers are right or wrong. It's look at a bigger picture and look for efficiencies everywhere, because man alive... 
there are a lot of administrators and a lot of school board trustees and a lot of government officials that get paid every day to administer education. Dave, I thank you for your call. Really appreciate it. Uh, to, To Dave's point... And here, I mean, here's where this becomes difficult. And here's where teachers, I think, are going to have, and the teachers' unions, but the teachers are the ones who bear the brunt when the unions make decisions. Here's where things get difficult for people, I really believe. The Hamilton District, Hamilton Wentworth District School Board, you can look, it's online, their budget for 2019-20. Their budget is for $568 million in operating expenses. 88% of that is in salaries. That doesn't leave a lot of money left over for the things that the teachers' unions keep saying are essential. We need class stuff. We need books. We need this. We need that. There's just not that. There's no money left. There's not much money left when you put 88% into salaries. And maybe I'll be surprised, and we got to go to break. Maybe I'll be shocked. Maybe I'll be pleasantly surprised this time when negotiations happen. But I do not think that I'm going to be seeing a teacher's union saying, we're not asking for any increase whatsoever in teacher salaries. I, I don't see that happening. Maybe I'll be surprised, but I don't see that happening, which will raise the 88% even higher. Hmm, we'll see. Uh, this this topic is absolutely not going away. We'll be talking about it more for sure. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you have been out in the summertime while people are wearing short sleeves, if you have turned on a basketball game, a hockey game, a UFC fight, uh, if you've watched a concert, if you've seen anybody pretty much on TV for the last number of years, not everybody, but often... You will know that tattoos have become a big part of modern culture. Once upon a time, tattoos were about Egyptian pharaohs and Maori warriors and hardened criminals in penitentiary. Uh, Now, I don't think too many people would be shocked if their 90-year-old grandma came back to the seniors' home one day and said, I got a tattoo. It's It's no longer, for most people, all that shocking. Here's the thing, though. They do, even though we are now used to them, I think, they do still inspire reactions. You can agree, you can disagree, but many people see a person covered in ink. They do form an opinion. It is reality. Get one on your face or neck, and I guarantee you that you are going to have people forming an opinion of you. It is, even if they say otherwise, you know they are. So the question becomes then, is there something that separates the people who get inked from the people who are not inked? Something deeper, something psychological, something beyond just a physical thing. Well, my next guest decided he was going to try and find out. Dr. Bradley Ruffles, McMaster economics prof, who just completed a study on people who are tattooed. He joins us now. Dr. Ruffles, thanks for doing this today. Thank you for having me, Scott. So it's a, it's a really interesting place to go here. And the thing that I wondered about most is what made you decide to go here? I'm wondering if you saw somebody who you thought, well, this one doesn't fit the mold of someone who would have a tattoo or something else. What made you decide I'm going to study tattoos? Well, it wasn't anyone in particular. It was really, uh, the fact that I grew up in a time where, as you said earlier, um, no one really had a tattoo. They were very uncommon versus, uh, many years later to few decades later today, as you say, people from all walks of life have them at all ages and all socioeconomic groups 
have them. And I wondered, what was this about? Why the change? Um, at the same time, as you noted, um, people do make assumptions, uh, judgments based on people who have tattoos, particularly visible ones. And so... Um, and I think that's probably, uh, sorry, and I think that's especially true of a certain age group, right? If you are probably over about 40 when you were a kid and everyone didn't have one, you're probably more likely to make those judgments. That's absolutely right. Yeah. The younger generation who's grown up with tattoos see it less as a, a deviant or unusual behavior than someone who, yeah, over 40 who grew up in a time when no one had a tattoo. And do you believe that the people who are older, and not everybody, we're not going to sweep everyone with the same brush, but the if many older people would see tattoos and form an immediate negative connotation, or at least a, a suspicious or a hmm connotation? I think that's certainly the case of, of many of, of older people. And the problem with that is that many of these older people are in positions of power. They're your employers or the person who's going to be evaluating you for promotion, and so the decision to get a tattoo for a younger person looking for a job or looking to be promoted in the workplace might be viewed as short-sighted in view of the fact that the person evaluating them may be biased against them. And so that's what we were interested in getting at. It's like the long-haired person in the, in the song Signs who was the long-haired freaky person who was trying to get the job and uh, tucked it up under their hat. You know, you got to make sure you know who you're working with here. That's right, yeah. Uh, so you do this study, and what were you actually trying to find out in this study? Well, we were measuring the time preferences of tattooed and non-tattooed individuals. In other words, we were looking at how much are you, how much, how important is the present to you relative to the future. So, if you're far-sighted, you might care a lot about the future, whereas if you're more short-sighted, you might put relatively more weight on the present. And for okay. you to for you to have come up with that um, as the the thing, like what was it that made you think that there might be? Because you have to have a reason to think that may be the case. Did you, did you have reason to believe that if you have a tattoo, that you may not be as far sighted? Yes. Well, okay. the fact that you'd get one as a young person, knowing that you're going to be looking for a job later, and knowing okay. that you might be prejudiced, that those evaluating might be prejudiced against you, suggests that maybe you're not thinking. Out in the far future, you just want you you get that tattoo now because you want it, you appreciate it, without maybe thinking through the longer term consequences. So the story today in the spec, and where I heard about this, and why I wanted to have you on the story, used two words to describe what you found. Uh, you concluded that people who got tattoos were more by percentage more reckless and more impulsive. Now, are the are those two fair words for what you found? No. Okay. <laughs> The reckless, is, uh, that is, uh, that's not my word at all. We don't use it anywhere. Instead, I'd replace the reckless with, they're, they're more short-sighted. They're more, they put more emphasis, the tattooed individuals, particularly those with visible tattoos, put more emphasis on the present and less emphasis on, on the future relative to those who are non-tattooed. And then the other characteristic which we, we measure is impulsivity. And yes, we do find evidence that tattooed individuals Again, particularly those with visible tattoos, meaning those on their face or neck, are more impulsive than those without, in, without tattoos. Uh, it's probably good you clarify the reckless thing, because I was on social media for a few minutes today looking at comments on the story, and uh, you were not the most popular guy among the tattooed community today for a no, period I, I, of time. I, I definitely had some pushback and feedback, and I, I clarify that by, that's, I guess, the media a little bit trying to sensationalize our research by choosing the word reckless, where we certainly don't mean that. Then another caveat here is one of our findings is that women who have only hidden tattoos, meaning tattoos they can cover up with clothing, like a long sleeve shirt or a pair of pants, we find that tattoo, those 
tattooed women are no more short-sighted or impulsive than non-tattooed women. So your friend who has the tiny ladybug tattooed on her foot is not someone who's going to destroy her life in the next 10 minutes with her impulsivity. No, I shouldn't say that <laughs> nobody is going to destroy their life with their tattoos. I mean, these are averages, right? You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Talking about tattoos... New study is out saying that if you have visible tattoos, this is from McMaster University, if you have visible tattoos, you are more likely to be impulsive. That's the very, very, very short form version of the study. Uh, the author of the study, Dr. Bradley Ruffel, is joining us now. Uh, can you explain how you do this? How do you come to the conclusion then? How do you reach these conclusions that impulsivity is tied to people who get tattoos? Yeah, so we actually, I should mention this is joint work with Ann Wilson, who's a social psychologist at Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo, and we devised a number of different measures to assess the time preferences and impulsivity of the tattooed and non-tattooed. So one measure was we offered them amount, different amounts of money. So we'd offer you, for instance, one U.S. dollar, which you could get now, or one U.S. dollar, which you'd get in three weeks. Of course, most people are going to choose the one dollar now rather than have to wait for it. That's fine. Next, we say, well, okay, let's increase the $1 you get in three weeks from now from $1 to, say, $1.10. Will you now be Will you now be willing to wait three weeks to get it? No? Well, how about $1.20 three weeks from now? No? How about $1.30? And we kept increasing the amount in three weeks' time until they switched from the dollar now to the future amount, the three-week payment. And what we found was that those individuals with tattoos, particularly visible ones, needed a lot more money to be convinced to give up that dollar now in order to wait three weeks. They needed over $2 in order to wait three weeks, whereas those who have no tattoos, on average, would, would switch already if they were given, offered $1.55. Was there a but, correlation at all between the number of tattoos people would have and how and the, where they would be on the scale? Yeah, that's a great question. No, in fact, there wasn't. We, we collected data on how many tattoos each individual had. And it didn't matter. The mere fact that you had one tattoo was sufficient, particularly if it was in a visible place, to make you um, more present-oriented and need more money for you to switch to that three-week hmm. wait. There was a question you also asked, and I, uh, this to me was the fascinating question. Now, I have not looked at the whole study, so there probably are other parts that I would find equally interesting, but this stood out. You asked the question, uh, and this is a quote, it's important to me to have a good time now, even if that means sacrificing my future. And I guess that was right. a true or false. What was the response when you asked that one? Right. So that's one of a, a different set of questions we asked. We asked people just to rank the, their to indicate a response on a scale of one to seven to that question, a number of other questions. And what we found there is is tattooed individuals, again, those with particularly those with visible tattoos, were more likely to agree with that statement that they're willing to sacrifice their future to have a good time now. So yet another measure of, of kind of short-sightedness, of present orientation. And that is a pretty straight, clear-cut, straightforward question that I think would be pretty representative. Like you, that, That's a really easy question to ask that would give you a pretty clear answer. There's not a lot of nuance to it. That's right. Yeah, exactly. It's very straightforward. So the extent that we believe people's self-reported responses, it, it does seem like, at least in response to that question, the tattooed, in tattooed individuals are more present-oriented and less future-oriented. We asked other questions like that. So we asked questions. That's a question which we, we say is in the, in the social realm, in terms of your social behavior. In terms of your health behavior, we asked questions like, how regularly do you overeat to the point of not feeling well? Um, how much alcohol do you consume? Are you a smoker? 
And there again, we found that the short-sighted behaviors were more prevalent among the tattooed than the non-tattooed. Um, in terms of finances, the same thing. We asked them how they manage their finances. How often do they make their credit card payments late? Um, Interesting. Those kinds of things. And again, tattooed individuals showed more short-sighted tendencies than those who were without tattoos. Did the, the people, I assume, they knew what this study was about. I'm wondering if the tattooed people believed they were more impulsive even before they took this. I don't know that they knew what it was about because all, amongst all these questions, we embedded lots and lots of other questions, like just filler questions. So it was sort of hard. To, we didn't ask these questions in a consecutive string about their behaviors. We interspersed them with all sorts of other questions. It was about a half an hour questionnaire that they filled out. Hmm. And so I, I'm, I'm pretty confident that they did not guess what it was about. And by the way, we only asked them whether they were tattooed or not at the very, very end of the study after we had elicited all the responses to the huh. short-sighted answers. So what do we take from this? And you mentioned, I mean, employers and stuff, but I mean, this, uh, where do we go? I mean, does this mean that if you are an employer that you should be looking for tattoos because that's not the person you want to hire or do we, or is that the completely wrong way that we should be looking at this? Like, what do we do with this information now? Well, look, I, first of all, I never like to judge an individual based on their group affiliation. So I wouldn't, I don't, I mean, and again, that's the first point. The second point is that these are just averages. It doesn't imply that everyone who has a tattoo is more short-sighted and everyone who doesn't have a tattoo is more far-sighted. Um, I'd say the bigger takeaway is just to be aware if you're contemplating getting a tattoo and you're at the start of your career, maybe put it in a, in an innocuous place that you can readily hide if need be. Uh, I got to let you go in just a second here. Uh, I probably should have asked this at the beginning. Do you have any tattoos? <laughs> I do not. <laughs> there I do you not. go. Yeah, well, would you ever get one? Or have you now learned, no, no, better just to keep it as it is? Well, I suppose I'm open to it. I'm, I wouldn't rule it out. But, but yeah, I have to say I learned a lot about tattoos and tattooed individuals. And I did come to the conclusion that perhaps other than these dimensions, which we looked at, um, along all other dimensions we collected, the tattooed and non-tattooed individuals look very much alike. It is a fascinating study. People can read more about it. It's on the spec.com website right now. Uh, it's a really interesting story. And as I say, I guarantee you that people who have a little ink on their body probably are very fascinated knowing uh, that they may be, there may be some psychological things they didn't even know about themselves. Who knows? Uh, Dr. B- Bradley Ruffle, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for taking a few minutes. My pleasure, Scott. It's, uh, it's a really interesting one. I, I don't know what it means, but it's a really, really interesting one. I'll tell you one thing. If you have a tattoo done on some really painful, really delicate, really intimate part of your body, I don't know about all the other tattoos. If you have one on your, or on your, uh, you are impulsive and reckless. <laughs> I will say that. All the other ones, I don't know. I'm not going to judge you on that one. But if you've got, you know, a... Uh, I don't know, Elmer Fudd running around on your package. Uh, I got questions for you, and I think you probably are a little more impulsive than I'm comfortable with. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I saw this story this week. And in fact, I saw the story originally on CHCH Sports. I was in the studio here. I look up. It's about 6.50 one night. And it looks like they're doing a commercial for some sort of watch because there's a watch on my TV set during the sports cast, which I'm not really understanding because I've got no sound. And I it, I can see the CHCH label on the screen, so I know it's not a commercial. I'm like, what are they doing? Did the did the station break? Did something happen? Nope. I'm going to bring in Bubba O'Neill from CHCH, CHCH to explain this one because th- this, this is one of... Um, oh, by the way, thanks for joining us, Bubba. 
Hello, how are you? Uh, so you had this story, and I didn't know anything about it, and then I started looking it up, and this is truly bonkers. Odell Beckham Jr., who uh, plays for the Cleveland Browns now, is a reasonably well-recompensed young man for his uh, his work on the football field, decided last week to wear a $350,000 watch during his game. $350,000. Where, do where does one get a $350,000 watch? Only 500 of them made. It's uh, this this very rare collaboration between McLaren, which is a British automaker. They make a high-end, very, I mean, extremely high-end vehicles. And... Um, and Richard Mill, who uh, you know are the one of the biggest uh, in terms of fashion, uh, high-end uh, timepieces, Swiss timepieces, and uh, they came together to put together this rare, only 500 made. Um, I believe that when it was sold, it was like 175,000. 175,000 dollars. I have no idea what's going on if you're hearing <laughs> Is the CHCH studio on fire? Yeah, I I, I don't know what that noise is. <laughs> I'm annoying. I'm shocked though that that they would make 500. I mean, are there really 500 people even on planet Earth who would drop 350 grand on a hey, watch? You know, Scott, one thing I have learned in life is that there are people in the world um, that are very wealthy that no regardless uh, they want the latest and the greatest. And getting this watch is something that was important to Odell Beckham Jr. And despite being told by the National Football League to take it off during games, again, he's wearing this during games, uh, he is saying, I'm wearing it. Okay, so there's so many parts about this. If I could somehow scrounge together, now he's not scrounging, but if I could scrounge together $350,000, I'm not sure that I want to take the chance that an offensive lineman's helmet is going to smash it to pieces. That seems like it's, you know, and it seems like there's a reasonable chance of that happening. The crazy thing with this watch is when I looked at it really, really carefully, it looks like it's the, the actual facing is, is metal. It's a mix between metal and carbon fiber. But it appears to me that the band itself is more of a rubber compound. Again, $350,000. It better be rubber made from the hide of Napoleon's buttocks or something <laughs> that they've taken out of the grave and, and turned into some form of rubber, you know, for Pope Pius the first or something. I mean, who, what kind of rubber? Honestly, if, if I'm getting a $350,000 watch, it had better be made of the world's finest material, not some sort of recycled Coke bottles. I think he likes it because it's, it's the actual Brown's colors, which is, you know, predominantly Brown and orange. And it does sort of match what he's wear his uniform. I don't understand. Like I, you know, the 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 league currently do have a rule. Don't have a rule against wearing jewelry, but they do have a rule about wearing anything that would be considered hard, a hard compound, a hard con, something that would you know what cause injury to someone. And. They have apparently contacted the Cleveland Browns about him wearing this. They they are aware that guys wear helmets, right? <laughs> they're, they're hard. I think just just to be clear, is, shoulder pads—they're hard. A hard, sharp, sharp object. Maybe that's the way they're looking at it. I just there is a part of me, and it's not a jealousy thing. It's because you know what? Good for him for doing what he's done and getting the money he has. That's fine. 
it's more the carelessness with your money kind of thing. There's a part of me that is hoping that he takes a direct blow to his watch and it explodes into a billion pieces in a game because that would be hilarious. <laughs> well, and and if he wants to wear it off the field, knock yourself out. That's totally fine. I'm not dumping on you for that. You've got the money. Do what you want to do. But this seems like it's just tempting the fates. Yeah, you know, I think his contract is $95 million. Uh, he could have bought all 500 of them. You know, and, and it's $65 million in guaranteed money. So I guess getting the watch plus, you know, I think he drives a Bentley. Of course he would. Probably three. <laughs> you know, yeah, probably has more than. more than. And I will say this about Odell. Um, especially over the last three to four years, he is, uh, you know, because you constantly see him in GQ um, with his clothing selection. But, he, you know, style and fashion are very, very big to him. So, you know, maybe yeah, but not on the time of his life he's caught up into this kind of stuff. But not on the field. Like, I'm okay, so the next stop will be, I don't know, some guy decides he's now going to wear diamond-encrusted cleats. I guess you could if you want. <laughs> You're right. Why not? Why not? I'm going to wear a giant belt buckle. The Dallas Cowboys are now going to wear all giant rodeo diamond-encrusted belt buckles. Well, then the commissioner would really have to step up. Mm-hmm. You know, but but I can see I can see why people are, you know, are, think this is absolutely ridiculous, and, um, and it's just it's it's just because of the the location. It's not the fact. Well, a lot of people will think it's ridiculous because of the money, and I get that for sure. But to take it onto the field that is a violent place where something is going to get broken, it just doesn't seem sensible by any stretch. Anyway, speaking of money, there was a report today from one of the Toronto or Canadian sports networks that if it's true, I want to ask you about this. If this is true, I want to know how this changes things. The report said that Mitch Marner, who everyone knows is not signed by the Maple Leafs, has been offered a seven or eight year contract for the exact same money or maybe even a little more than Austin Matthews got. And his camp has said no. And if this is true, Bubba, you know, we keep hearing Mitch Marner is the Toronto boy who loves playing for the Leafs and blah, blah, blah. If this is true, I really think if this thing starts to drag out, he, he does not become the guy that comes back easily in the public eye from this one. This is, if the Leafs were trying to shortchange him in the eyes of the public, that's one thing. But if you're being offered more than the team's centerpiece and you're still saying no, I, I think this is a problem for him. Um, yeah, you're already starting to see on social media so there a little bit of backlash. You know that you know. I think there are people out there, and I don't agree to this. And you know, people believe he should take a hometown discount, and because he, you know, he's a Toronto boy and wants to be here, and you know, wants to play for the Toronto Maple Leafs and bring you know the and this long Stanley Cup drought. Uh, I will say this: uh, I'm looking at the current state of sports not just across the National Hockey League. And you're seeing some, you're seeing some corrections, too. I mean, I'll call it corrections because um, players are looking at what people in the National Football League and especially the NBA are, are doing with their contracts. They don't want to be locked in to a, a 10- or 11-year contract or a 7-year contract or an 8-year contract because the thing is now you're locked at that price for that length. And who knows what the market will, uh, you know, if he continues on the trajectory there and what he's going, where he's going in terms of his, the pace of his points and, you know, his contributions to the team, um, five years from now, that could be a value for the team and not so much for him. 
So that's why players are looking more at two to three, maximum four, maybe even five years. And if you're that, if you're a big star like him, you're not, you're you're probably not going to go to five years, because especially with his age, full knowing that his next contract will be the one that probably pays him the biggest amount that he will get in his career. And I understand that. I understand that, but there's two points with this that I first of all, maybe I'm just naive because I'm not in that world. But if you're talking about eighty-eight million dollars versus over the course of the career, ninety-five or a hundred million dollars, I know that's more. I can do math. I know that is a higher number. But at at, at what point do you say I'm not going to spend eighty-eight million dollars in my life plus whatever I invest oh, God, in? Let me hold. It's plus, a, wait sorry. a second. But plus, if you are in Toronto and you're a Toronto guy and you star on the Maple Leafs, you will make plenty of money with endorsements on the side. You're never going to pay for a meal in your hometown. Like there's benefits to this beyond just the money thing. First of all, I think you have to look at the $88 million and realize that the because he's playing in Toronto with the Canadian tax situation, that $88 million probably goes down to 50. All right. And again, this is over an extended amount of time. Um, and you talk about endorsements. This is not the United States. Endorsement money for athletes in this country is it's it's not even a tenth of what it would be if he was a big star in the United States. So to think that you know what he's going to be the next McLean, I don't know McCain's, uh, I don't know uh, wedges guy. It's just not the same as you know as being uh, I don't know uh, the the Jiffy peanut butter guy in the United States. It's not even close. But if he goes down to the States or goes to another team, he, no one will even know who he is. Let's if say the he, Leafs... If he's a star... No, nah, if... Well, with with a couple teams, with a, with a few teams, a handful of teams, but if they trade him to the Florida Panthers, he may as well be Skippy the popcorn seller in the crowd because no one will know who that guy is. And Nobody. you also think about this, Scott, if he goes to Florida, he doesn't pay taxes and he, and he plays hockey in warm weather. And never wins. Never oh. wins. And I don't know. Roberto Luongo seems to be okay with it. <laughs> some guy, no, some guys are. Some yeah, guys like, are. And, and, I, and I, it, it, there's something about the environment of playing hockey there. Um, and you know what? If you're Tampa Bay, look at what uh, Steven Stamkos. Steven Stamkos took less money to be with the Tampa Bay Lightning as opposed to when his free agency came up two years ago than what the Toronto, the Toronto Maple Leafs offered him big, big money. In in the yep. in, in the in the area of what uh, John Tavares uh, was offered, and it sounds like a little bit more. It sounds like you talk about endorsements that a lot of it because what he was looking for was probably over the salary cap. Well, Canadian Tire was involved yes, in some others. Yes, so they found external companies to find him as a, a personal services contract. But here's so, the here's the here's the problem. I think you're going to have if you're Mitch Marner at this point. We we sort of touched on it at the beginning. William Nylander set the table for Leaf fans and soured the milk because he held out, waited and waited and waited, finally signed a contract that a lot of people thought was too much for him and then stunk the joint out when he came back. Mitch Marner, I don't know if he would stink the joint out if he misses an extended period of time, but if Mitch Marner, one of the things we've heard from his camp over the last number of months is, I think it was his dad or someone was quoted as talking about how, well, how come Mitch Marner is never considered when they talk about who could be a captain of the Leafs? It's always Austin Matthews or or John Tavares or someone. If he holds out, I'm telling you, Mitch Marner, 
that goodwill from a lot of people in the city is gone. He is now just a an athlete for pay. He is a mercenary. He's nothing more than that. And maybe that's okay with him, but I've never looked at him and thought that. I've always thought watching him that this is a guy that really cared about being liked the way he gives pucks to the face, he he really wants to be liked, and I don't know that just being a mercenary is going to work for him. Scott, if this guy finally comes to terms with a deal in December, and people are annoyed that he hasn't signed, and whatever that goes on, uh, once he once he sets up, uh, once he has his first five point night, all will be forgotten. Maybe, and, and, and I'm telling you, that's just the way the city is. If this team is winning, all of this will be forgotten. He's doing it for principle. He's doing it also for the I mean, the players' association have informed all of these athletes of looking out for yourself and knowing that. I mean, remember, he is not the only high-end uh, restricted free agent that is doing this. How do you think they feel in Winnipeg right now? Well, that they've got a bunch of guys too, including right? Line. They, they got Line and Connor. Right, that represents. I don't know. I mean, uh, I I can't. I'm just going off the top of my head right now, based on last year's numbers. Uh, I'm going to think in my head that's probably almost 70 goals right there between Connor and and Line. So, at what point, if you're the Leafs, do you look at this and you go, "We've got so much money tied up in this. Uh, we've got a guy that is holding out. If he does hold out, at what point do you honestly say?" we just have to reluctantly start to look at whether or not there's a trade market for this guy because if we now pay him $12 million a year, more than Austin Matthews, more than John Tavares, we simply are not going to be able to put a team on the ice behind him and we just can't do that and lock in for that period of time. At what point do you say we've got to look? You end up like the Chicago Blackhawks, but the Chicago Blackhawks found a way to do it Paying their top three players and Duncan Keith, the defenseman, and John and uh, Jonathan Taves and Patrick Kane, and big money and Corey Crawford and goaltender. So that's four players that probably took up about fifty percent of their salary cap money, and all they did was shuffle guys in and out. You never really got attached to the rest of the team because by the end of the year, they could all be gone and exchange for other guys. There's one difference. There's one big difference between Chicago and Toronto. When they first ran into their money problem and had to start doing that, it was after they'd won a Stanley Cup. This Leafs team with this Leafs line, now I know they got a bunch of new guys, right. haven't won a playoff series, right. let alone a cup. So you're, you're right. already into salary cap hell, and you've got nothing to show for it. Nothing. You're right. And remember, and remember, we could be going through this very next situation with the guy that many people believe should be the captain of the Toronto mm-hmm. Maple Leafs in Morgan Riley. Yep. And you've so, got two other defensemen that you probably want to keep on the team who both want money. For sure, for sure. But I, I, would, I think of the dean of the, you know, the big three or big four, I think Morgan Riley is part of that. And uh, once again, I go back to my point. We only have a minute or so left here, but I go back to my point. If Mitch Marner squeezed the Leafs as hard as we hear that he is trying to do it, and then it turns out that they can't sign Morgan Riley or in a year or two Freddie Anderson, the goalie has to go or something else, that's going to come back if the salary cap doesn't go up by a lot. That's going to come back on Marner, and he is going to take the blame for this team falling apart. Uh, you know you know what? Fair or not, he will. You're, you're right. You're, you're, you could be right here. Let's see what happens. Let the situation play out. I believe the deal will get done. I really do. Uh, and I do believe that really nothing to worry about right now, even though camp starts tomorrow. Uh, I think the real warning point is obviously when the first games start being played. Um, and, and you're right. It, it was tough for Nylander last year because when you miss that much time and you don't have training camp, you, you're going to struggle. 
And I think I don't care. I think Marner will struggle if, if he if it ends up going to the bottom. You know that final minute like it did. I think Marner's going to struggle too. It's just natural when you miss two months of hockey plus training camp. Off- you just can't walk in there and 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 be what you used to be. Offer him one point five million a year plus Odell Beckham's watch, and I'm guaranteeing <laughs> he will take that deal. That's an expensive, nice watch. Mitch Mitch is kind of a fashion plate too. He may have one that's probably about a, a hundred thousand. <laughs> These kids are, you know, <laughs> Matthews is too. He he's into the fashion too. So yeah, he's you know, got expensive taste. It, it is. I, I, again, it's not a you know good for guys who can make the money. Although this is an, this is we're talking about this in a different reason because this is a, it affects the team. There's a lot of other things here. It's not just guys who are doing well, but <laughs> it is tough sometimes. When you look at these kids who look like they're in grade four and you're saying, oh, he's fighting over between 11 or $12 million. And it's like, man, there are so many people in this area who would say, wait a second, you are not willing to play because you won't accept 11 million. You can't compare Scott. It's a different world. I will, uh, I gotta let you go see you can evacuate before the entire building burns to the ground. I have no idea what's going on here. What is that noise? I would, I, it's... Have you figured it out yet? No, everyone's everyone's freaking out. It's it's Phil Perkins. His hair is on fire. <laughs> Get him out of the building and extinguish him. Well, t- thanks for the time. Always appreciate it, Bubba. Thanks for having thanks. me. Uh, that is Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. You can tune in tonight and see Phil Perkins' hair as a torch. I don't think it was Phil Perkins' hair. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.